You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you now to open your Bibles to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. Romans chapter 8 and let us read verses 1 through 30. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. 
And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This morning, the text for the sermon is found also in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. And there we read, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, as you well know, the Bible contains many powerful and beautiful promises in regard to the matter of prayer to our Father in heaven. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and spread throughout both Testaments, God gives us many reasons to believe that our prayers, which we bring to his throne, will always be heard, that they will never be uttered by us in vain. Think only of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself as we find them toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he declares to his disciples, Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And that kind of prayer promise is repeated at length throughout the Gospels. For example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, in verse 13, we hear Christ saying once again to his disciples, Whatever you ask in my name, I will give it. And so we could go on at great length this morning, setting before you the many examples of biblical promises in relation to our prayers. Promises like these can have a great effect upon our lives. They can encourage us to be diligent in prayer. They can also help us to pray with a sense of expectation, knowing that we are not praying simply to an unknown deity, but we are praying to a Father who has committed himself beforehand to answer every prayer which we ever bring to him in faith. The prayer of God's believing people, as James says in the fifth chapter of his letter, truly are powerful in their effects. When we pray, we may expect life to change. We may expect the lives of people we love to change. We may expect the, the life of the congregation to change because God has attached to his promises or to our prayers his promises that he will answer them. However, it's likely that even when you take all of these promises very seriously as a true Christian ought to do so, even when you are faithful in prayer, praying from the heart, even when you pray with genuine faith every day, it's entirely likely that from time to time you sense at a very deep level the inadequacy of your prayers. It can happen that you somehow feel that you're not saying the right thing to God. It can happen to you as a Christian that you have deep longings and profound feelings, but you somehow just cannot find words to express them. You have a love beyond words. You have a grief beyond anyone's ability to put into human language. 
or you have a problem so massive, so pervasive, so persistent in your life that you don't even know anymore what you should be saying about it as you draw near to your Father in heaven in prayer. It could be sometimes that when you go to God in prayer, you feel like you might when you go to a doctor from time to time. Sometimes you have a health issue, but you can't quite put your finger on it. You know you're somehow off, that your entire bodily systems are somehow not the way they're supposed to be, but you can't exactly spell it out. And so you go to the doctor with this sort of undiagnosed feeling about your well-being, and he's got to ask you a lot of questions to bring out of you what exactly it is. So it can't be when we go to God that there are many things in our hearts, things we're aware of, some things that are living in us at a subconscious level, and we simply cannot find the words to bring them before our Father in heaven. Well, brothers and sisters, if you've ever wished that there was someone who could say it better, if you've ever thought that it would be lovely if there was someone who could get the words right, if there was some person who could say exactly what it is that you need, exactly what it is that you feel, well, then take comfort. Because here in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul tells us that there is such a person, a person who is able to and who does say exactly what needs to be said on your behalf before your Father who is in heaven. That person is the Holy Spirit, and so this morning we will speak about the amazing fact that the Holy Spirit intercedes for the people of God. And we'll notice three points. First of all, the need for this intercession. Secondly, the depth of this intercession. And thirdly, the power of this intercession. First then, the need for this intercession of the Holy Spirit. But one of the things that you can't miss about the 8th chapter of Romans when you read it from beginning to end is that it has a lot to say about the future glory of the people of God. You read Romans 8 and it opens up for you a wonderful vista toward the promised future of God. Let me remind you of some of the things which the Apostle highlights. In verse 11, the Apostle says that the same Spirit who dwells in your hearts today will, on that great day of the Lord, give resurrection life to your mortal bodies. And then in verse 17, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we are heirs of God. We have an inheritance waiting for us. An inheritance which Peter says in 1 Peter 1 is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for us. And verse 17 also reminds us that we are on the way to glory. The Lord Jesus Christ is glorious today and He has promised that where He is, we will be also and that His glory will be our glory. And then verse 21 talks about that beautiful new age when creation itself will be liberated from its bondage. Creation isn't slavery. It's in bondage to decay, to degeneration, to death. Well, Paul reminds us of that wonderful new era when creation, just like Israel long ago, was let out of bondage. So creation will be let out of bondage and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And then in verse 23, the Apostle Paul keeps talking about the future. He, he thinks there about the time when our bodies will be redeemed. We are redeemed, but our bodies are frail and mortal. And so Paul says, the day is coming when, when also our bodies will share in the saving power of Jesus Christ. And that same hope of glory is expressed in verse 30, the last verse of our Bible reading. Those he justified, he also 
glorified. And so you read Romans 8 and you get this powerful accumulation of promises and images, words that point us to the promised future, all the good things which God has promised. And it fills us all over again with anticipation. But Romans 8 is also emphatic in teaching us that these beautiful things which God has promised are indeed future things. We are not yet in glory. We are not yet in possession of all the things which God has promised to us. On the contrary, Paul reminds us here that we have but yet a foretaste of the good things which God has promised. We have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within our hearts, dwelling within the congregation of Jesus Christ. And the presence of the Holy Spirit, Paul says elsewhere, is a down payment on the glory which is to come. Well, the down payment doesn't really compare with the full full payment, does it? And so the down payment of the Holy Spirit, which we have today, cannot really compare to the fullness of the life of the resurrection age, which God has promised. So we have glorious promises, but we have a present reality that is a broken reality. Indeed, in verse 21, as we already saw, the Apostle Paul describes all creation as languishing in slavery. The whole creation of God, which God made to reveal His glory, is in bondage to decay and degeneration. And then in verse 22, the Apostle Paul uses a unique word. He says that creation is indeed groaning. It's groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So although the human, although the world was meant to be ruled by humans, it's today ruled by fallen humans. And because it's ruled by fallen humans, it suffers. It groans. It groans in travail as a woman about to give birth to a child. And you know, we who are Christians, we who put our trust in God's promises are not somehow wondrously immune to the brokenness of life in the world today. We're part of that broken world. Our bodies are part of that world. Our minds are part of that broken world. Our families are part of that broken world. Our church is part of that broken world still. And that means we share in the pain of it. We share in the suffering of it. We are not in any way exempt from its sickness, from its sorrow, from its death. We are not free from the disorder that affects the whole world. Wars, disasters, economic woes, recessions, even depressions, they do not pass God's children by. We do not live in a bubble zone where life is just beautiful and sweet all the time. In fact, our suffering as Christians, our groaning, if you will, can be even more intense than that of those who do not know God. Our suffering can be more intense precisely because we do know God. For example, in verse 13, the Apostle Paul talks about putting to death the misdeeds of the body. That's what you were supposed to be involved in the past week, putting to death the misdeeds of the body. Or as Paul would say elsewhere, crucifying your old nature. Now, those are not nice images. Those are images that bespeak struggle. It's a struggle to put to death the misdeeds of the body. And putting to death the misdeeds of the body can involve pain. It involves suffering. The fight against sin is never an easy fight. It's a fight that's difficult and hard, and it brings suffering to everyone who engages in that battle. 
And then too, there is the suffering of persecution spoken about frequently in Romans chapter 8. Paul writes about that in verse 17, for example. He says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we share in His sufferings. Christ is a suffering Savior. It was through suffering that He saved us. And Christ calls us, when He calls us to faith, to the fellowship of suffering. And then in verse 36, the Apostle Paul again speaks about the suffering of the Christian church. He quotes there from Psalm 44. He says, As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's how it was for many Christians then in the time of Paul. That's how it was for many Christians today throughout the world and many different nations. And that's what you also may expect. You may expect to be slaughtered for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so putting it all together, we can say, yes, Romans 8 reminds us that we have a beautiful future, a future that is unimaginably beautiful. But Romans 8 also paints for us a realistic picture of life today, a life that is difficult and painful. And it's in this context that the Apostle Paul then speaks in verse 23 about the groaning of believers. Just like creation itself groans, there's a second groaning. He writes in verse 23, We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. If you think about that groaning, there's really two reasons for it. On the one hand, there's there's groaning because of present suffering. Because of all that misery that we experience in a broken world, all the misery we experience because we are Christians, we groan because of that. But more importantly, Paul puts the groaning here in the context of the future. He says that we groan because we know of what's coming. We groan as a woman in childbirth groans toward delivery. We groan toward that day when Jesus will be manifested and all things will be made new. So we live between the fall with all the consequences and the promised future. And living in that in-between time, what can we do but groan? Groan inwardly and, and groan outwardly sometimes too. As we find, for example, in many of the Old Testament Psalms, you may have found some of the Psalms chosen for the service this morning to be a little bit on the downside, if I may put it that way. Think of Psalm 31. David says in verse 10, My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning and my strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Now you might have thought to yourself as you sang those words, well, what's that to do with me? That's not my life. I'm healthy. I'm well. I'm young. I have lots to be thankful for. I've experienced success this past week. Things went well for me. And so why am I singing here about this misery? Well, you know, that's because you never sing the Psalms individualistically. You never sing them just about you. You sing them as God's people. And God's people are a united people from age to age. And God's people are a groaning people. And so even if your life today is a good life, you are part of a people which is a groaning people. And you sing words of the Psalms because you are part of that corporate entity called the church, which is a suffering church. And will continue to be a broken, suffering church until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And in the same light, we can read other psalms. We can think of Psalm 38, verse 8, where the psalmist says, I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie before you, O Lord. My sign is not hidden from you. You see, it's this kind of language from the Psalter of Israel that Paul pulls out that image of groaning. He doesn't just make that up himself, but that comes from that devout prayer life of the Old Testament church. The church of Israel groaned before God in her worship. She groaned because of the fall, and she groaned because of her longing for what God had promised. This kind of language can make you think also of what Israel experienced in Egypt. We read in the second chapter of the book of Exodus, verse 23, the Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so even if your life is going well, people of God, then sing these songs without embarrassment because you're part of something bigger than just you. You're part of the Catholic Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how you sing these psalms. You express the experience not just of your life, but of the life of the whole church and the pain about which you sing then, and the confusion, and the despair, and the anguish, well, that's, that's the emotion of the whole Catholic Church of Jesus Christ from age to age. But the thing then is, even when we pray in the midst of the troubles and hardships of life, we don't always know exactly what to pray. We have a need, but we can't exactly spell out that need before the Lord. We want to do God's will, but we can't even see anymore what God's will is. Think of what it's like, for example, when you've sinned again and again and yet again. Just just keep doing it. You sin and you sin and you sin. You stumbled. You fell on your face. You got up. You confessed your sin. You walked a little further and you fell again. You keep doing that. You know, you get to the point you don't know what to say to God. You get to the point you can barely lift up your eyes to heaven. What do you say? What words do you bring to the Father when you feel like that? When you're so spiritually drained because of your repeated failures and continued patterns of transgression. Or think of the struggle you might have in the face of an illness that's gone on for a long time. Some of you know right now what that's all about. You've prayed for healing, but... God has not given this to you. And the misery of your sickness is relentless. There just seems to be no rest. It's, it's making you feel like one man told me, he said he felt like a cornered beast because of the illness that was causing so much suffering for him. Well, when you're in that position, you, you don't know what to say to God. You just groan. So all you can do is you just groan. You have deep needs and powerful longings. You can't even find the words for them. And you know that kind of physical suffering can also become emotional suffering. People suffer sometimes emotionally under all kinds of pressure of traumatic experiences. And they get so worn down and so broken by it all that they barely know what to say when they fold their hands and close their eyes and draw near to the Lord. They cannot find the words they need to express what they really need. Well, take comfort, brothers and sisters, when you have those kind of 
profound experiences. Take comfort in knowing that even when you can't express the deepest things of your hearts, the Spirit of God intercedes for you. And you know the thing about the Spirit is that He knows you. He dwells within you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you totally, comprehensively. He listens to the deepest longings of your hearts, which you can't put into words. He hears your inarticulate cries, and He makes them His own. And He takes them to the Father in heaven. He brings them to the throne of the Father's grace. Isn't that a wonderful reality for us to contemplate this morning in a time of sorrow and grief when we perhaps don't know what to say ourselves either. We have a God who himself intercedes for us. Verse 34, to look a little bit further in this passage, says that Jesus Christ intercedes for us too. We have a Savior who is at the right hand of the Father and is interceding for us. So God is interceding to God at the right hand of the Father. And just as we have an intercessor in heaven, so we have an intercessor within our own hearts. God crying out to God from within the temple of our own heart. Now, isn't that something to reflect about on the Sunday morning? God crying out to God from within you. Bringing before the Father all the needs of your life. Well, we get even more comfort when we consider the depths of the Spirit's intercession. And that's our second point. And the depths of the Spirit's intercession is expressed in the word groaning. Just like creation groans, and just like you yourself groan, so says Paul, the Spirit also groans. And you can sense from that word how much the Spirit really cares about you as God's people. He dwells within you, and He's not dwelling within you as some kind of a spectator who just watches everything impassively. No, the Spirit who dwells within you cares very deeply. If I may put it in some modern jargon, He feels your pain. He feels your pain as the Holy Spirit of the living God. He feels your pain, and He makes that pain His own pain. And He expresses that pain, that anguish, that groaning to the Father who is in heaven. At the end of the book of Revelations, we also hear about the Spirit praying in chapter 22, verse 17 of Revelation, we read this marvelous sentence, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. So there's two praying parties there, the Spirit and the Bride. The Bride is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Bride is praying in Revelation 22, verse 17. The Bride is longing towards the day of the coming of the Bridegroom. She cries, Come. But the Holy Spirit, remarkably, is praying the very same thing. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The Spirit prays with you as an individual believer and the Spirit prays with the whole groaning church of God. God cries out to God. Again, we see that most marvelous mystery. God crying out to God. The Spirit crying out to the Father. Come, send your Son, Jesus Christ, and fulfill the prayers and the wishes and the longings of your people whom you have redeemed. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you feel a struggle to say exactly what needs to be said, when you find yourself so immersed in the brokenness of this world that you don't even know how to talk anymore to God, 
then once again take comfort. Don't be afraid that somehow your needs will be overlooked because the Spirit who dwells within you is taking that whole mess of your life before the Lord and asking God to give you what you need in your time of need. And so we can also say that the Spirit's intercessory work has power, and that's then the third point of this sermon. Verse 27 assures us that the groaning of the Spirit is understood by the Father. God the Father says, verse 27, searches the mind of the Spirit. If you think back in your memories of the Word of God, you can remember how in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle tells us that the Spirit of God comprehends the thoughts of God. And here it's just the other way around. God comprehends the thoughts of the Spirit. And the thing is that when God receives these intercessory prayers of the Spirit, all of the requests of the Spirit are fully in harmony with the will of God. Can you imagine God bringing something to God that is not in harmony with God's will? And so when the Spirit brings your prayers and perfects them before the throne of God, then those prayers are fully in harmony with the will of God. And because they are fully in harmony with the will of God, God answers them immediately and directly. And what power such prayer must have then? Prayer that is in complete submission to the will of God. Such prayer is always answered immediately, positively. Such prayer has great effects. Your prayer, people of God, has great effects because it is taken up by the Spirit, perfected before the throne of the Father, and answered by God Himself. God answering God. And what is the result of God hearing the intercessory prayers of the Spirit? The result is this, that no matter how difficult your life may be, no matter how profoundly you are suffering, no matter how complex your life is, as a life immersed in the brokenness of the world, no matter how weak you feel, no matter how helpless you are, God will keep you safe because God hears the groaning of the Spirit when the Spirit draws near to God's throne. And just to put that in context, look at verse 28 following right after our text. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. How can that be true? Well, that, that's, a, that's a true word of God because God hears the prayers of the Spirit. The Spirit brings before the Lord our groanings. The Spirit Himself groans before the Father. The Father answers that prayer, and therefore we are safe in the midst of the ugliness, the horror, the anguish, and the groaning of a life of sorrow. And look also at verse 30 of the same chapter. It says, in those... Not verse 30, sorry. Verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that's a true promise of the Word of God because the Spirit prays. The Spirit expresses what you cannot express, and the Spirit perfects your expressions of your need. And God answers, and so God keeps you safe. And so, yes, we have problems. 
We experience suffering. Some of you suffer profoundly even on this Lord's Day. There is a great measure of anguish in the church of God. But the Spirit intercedes. And because God hears the Spirit, because God answers the prayers of the Spirit, we can go on. We can persevere. We can run with perseverance the race that God has set before us. And so we can enter the glory which the Lord has promised. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.